A man was traveling on a lonely road to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him senseless, and left him for dead. A little while later, a priest happened to pass by in that same road. He saw the man lying in the gutter, but he was too busy to be troubled, and he crossed to the other side and went on his way. The road was quiet again until another religious leader happened to pass by. He too steered clear and pretended not to notice the man barely alive by the roadside. And then a Samaritan approached, and he was different. He didn't cross the road as the others had. Instead, he drew near to the man struggling for life in the dirt. Whoa, those are some wounds you've got, he said. Oof, that's quite a mess on the ground. You better stop that bleeding. And goodness, your clothes are pathetic, all torn to shreds. You better get some new ones. Get yourself a good meal, a place to rest, and some proper medical attention pronto. God be with you. And he went on his way. Which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? It's sort of the parable of the Good Samaritan, according to James. <laughs> what good is it? my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith and do not have works, he asks his hearers. Does that kind of faith help your neighbor in a desperate situation? Does it make any difference? Your trust in Jesus ought to be good news for those around you, and if it's not, something is wrong. So, says James, faith, if it has no works, is dead. If you have spent a long time on a steady diet of Paul's teaching, then some of the language in our reading this morning can seem pretty jarring. Can faith save you? James asks. Well, isn't that kind of what Paul said? A few verses beyond our reading, James will say it even more strongly. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Yikes. Isn't that like exactly the opposite of what Paul taught his churches? That we are saved by grace alone and not by our actions? Readers have sometimes seen James and Paul as sort of warring voices here, but many more have recognized they're simply addressing very different concerns. Paul's language of grace alone is written for communities struggling to understand the role of the law and of human agency in their relationship with God. Are we finally made right with God by our own efforts or by God's mercy? And Paul's answer is clear. God's saving love in Christ is a gift, pure and simple. James, on the other hand, is writing to communities struggling to understand the consequences of the grace they've received. You know God is the generous giver and has dealt generously with you. So live that way already. To Christians struggling anxiously to earn their salvation, Paul says it's all grace. And to Christians dozing in complacency and living as though their faith asks nothing of them, James says, get moving. See what I mean? They're really two sides of the same coin. I imagine James and Paul would have gotten along just fine. James is writing to help his hearers align their actions with their beliefs. And in our reading this week, he zeroes in on one example in particular, one instance where what we say we believe ought to dramatically affect the way that we act. 
He lays out this scenario. Maybe it's something he actually saw in a Christian community, or maybe it's something he thought up. Members of the church are meeting, and in walk these two visitors, one dressed in all of the marks of wealth, and the other one clearly suffering from poverty. The wealthy person is fawned over, treated with dignity, and given a place of honor. And the poor person, on the other hand, is sort of shoved to the side, ordered around, and generally treated with disgrace. That may be how society as a whole treats people, James says, but you must be different. It's not just that favoritism is distasteful or wrong. Even more, it profoundly contradicts the gospel. We proclaim and follow one who broke down barriers, who upended social hierarchies, who lifted up the poor and called them blessed, who proclaimed a kingdom based not on society's conventional determinations of worth, but on the gracious love of God. For James, the integrity of our faith is at stake here. Do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? He writes. We can't say we believe in Jesus and then proceed in drawing distinctions as the world does. After all, Jesus himself drew no distinctions. Right? Right. Except for that one time, which happens to be our gospel reading this morning. I don't know how this particular gospel text and this reading from James ended up paired with one another in our cycle of readings, but it is quite a pairing. Because the story of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman is, in fact, an instance of Jesus speaking the language of favoritism. Not based on wealth, of course, but based on ethnic and religious identity. Jesus and the disciples are far beyond their usual stomping grounds of Galilee passing through the region of Tyre, and this is not Jewish territory, and Mark tells us that Jesus was trying to keep his presence quiet to avoid being noticed here. But somehow word got around anyway, and that evening a woman showed up at the door. Her young daughter suffered from an unclean spirit, and she had heard Jesus was a remarkable healer. Would he cast the demon out of her daughter? And we expect Jesus to say yes, of course, it's what he does all the time. Parents come pleading for their children. Strangers come asking on behalf of their friends. Sick people reach out a hand, and Jesus heals. His power is great, matched only by his compassion for those in need. So we expect Jesus to agree to the woman's request. We know where this is going. Except that Jesus doesn't agree. The woman begs him to heal her daughter, and he doesn't say yes. He doesn't even just say no. He calls this desperate mother a Gentile dog. Let the children be fed first, he says, for it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. There's no way around the ugliness of what Jesus says right here. The woman pleading with him is not his concern because she's not of his religion, not of his people. I came from my own. Jesus says, and that's not you, so get lost. What is Jesus' response to this woman here but favoritism? In this moment, he sees not simply a person made in the image of God, but an outsider, a person he can ignore and dismiss. 
It is a deeply uncomfortable scene. But of course, it doesn't end there. The woman does not passively accept Jesus' answer. She challenges him to rethink his position, to reimagine what he's here to do. Sir, she says, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. It's an incredibly bold and courageous thing that she says. Okay, I see how you see this. You think grace is limited, that there isn't actually enough to go around. But look at how abundant it really is. There's more than enough. The table is heaped high, and there is plenty for all. This woman calls Jesus out on his favoritism. She pushes him to see the mercy of God and his mission more broadly. It's a remarkable thing that she does, and just as remarkable, Jesus changes his mind. He accepts her challenge and grants her request. She returns home to find her daughter well, the demon gone. So back to James. Do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? To me, at least, that question sounds a little bit different with this particular gospel story in the background. But maybe it's all the more powerful that way. Because it reminds us that any of us can be changed. Even Jesus was blinded by his own biases sometimes. Even he was limited by the prejudices and divisions of his own day. But when he was faced with somebody who challenged those biases for what they were, limitations on the grace of God, he was willing to be changed. Believing in Jesus is just that. It's committing ourselves to the reign of God he proclaimed, yes, where there's room for all, where there is plenty of mercy and hope to go around, and it is also willing to be challenged when our vision of that reign is too small, when we're drawing boundaries instead of breaking them down, when we're dividing the world up into worthy and unworthy instead of accepting the gospel truth that all are beloved and all are welcome. It's all about integrity of faith for James, our believing and our acting need to line up. So if that's the Jesus we believe in, one who was always willing to be stretched toward a wider view of God's mercy, then we better be willing to build one heck of a big table. Because the guest list is too long to count. And there's more than enough grace to go around. Thanks be to God. Amen.